Alright, well, shall we get started? Wait, what are we doing next time? Moggy and someone else? Magi? Moggy? I don't know. I'm always gonna say Moggy because I watched the anime first, so I apologize in advance. It's been a bit of a longer gap than we expected between this and our last episode. I know that I got sick after KatsuCon. I had KatsuCon. I then also insisted we couldn't record one evening because that was a single day that Ride Your Way was in theater. So just a lot has happened. Misaki also is important. Yeah, the thing was I actually didn't like Ride Your Wave as much as some of the other stuff. So we are back. And this episode we're going to be talking about two series where we actually debated which order we we're going to talk about them but the order we decided on is that we we're first going to talk about rose of versailles the shoujo manga from the 1970s which is currently being released in english followed by cats of the louvre which is from within the past decade but is complete in english since it is only a one shot we can also call this the omnibus edition episode because both of these came out in lovely hardback uh, omnibus editions so talking first up oh, since it's been so long, we should probably reintroduce ourselves. I'm Helen, and you guys? I'm April. Hello, I'm Corey, still. Still, yep. <laughs> but that has not changed. We're, we're just... It, it's been a little while, guys. Sorry, I need to get back into the groove here with this yep. one. So, talking first about Rose of Versailles. This is, like I said, an older series. Uh, and it was quite influential and remains influential to this day. Uh, created by Ryoko Ikeda. It follows... Uh, Three people, actually, which surprised me a little bit since I've only seen the anime before, and the anime focuses slightly differently. It focuses on three people as they are born and grow up in a time of tumultuous change. We have the future Marie Antoinette, who is born a princess of Austria and then later marries into the French royal family. We follow Hans von Axel, who is born to a Swedish noble family and becomes one of Antoinette's paramours at a later point. And those two are historical real figures. I was not sure about Hans when I was watching the anime, but Wikipedia assures me this was a real dude. Um, and then our last person is Oscar Fredois. Fredois? Uh, Oscar Francois Desjardins. That is probably it. I did not study French. Did either of you two study French? I did. I did. Okay, yeah, you guys are going to have to French that Latin. Like a sensible person. Um, oh, this is also the French podcast. Oh, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> uh, so Oscar is a totally historical character. The plot, the backstory for Oscar is that they were born the last child and last girl to the Darjay's family. And their father, upon realizing that he had yet another girl, just said, screw it, I'm raising this one as my heir. I'm going to raise her like a man. She's going to learn how to ride, how to shoot, how to commandeer the royal guard. It's going to be great. And Oscar does enjoy this life. And so the threads start to come together as Marie Antoinette becomes Marie Antoinette as she is as she comes over to France and marries into the French royal family. Oscar is one of her guards um, since she is rising quite quickly in the French military. Hans comes in a little later. 
And I was actually a bit surprised to see that he that Ikeda labels him as one of the main characters since, like I said, I previously watched the anime, and he always struck me as, like, an important side character, but only a side character. Mm-hmm. But also, when I was watching the anime, I was under the impression that Oscar is, like, front and center the main character. But here, in at least his first volume of the manga, Oscar and Marie really shared stage quite often, going back and forth between the two of them. And since I was kind of lukewarm on the anime... Like, I have the DVDs just because I want to have them around since it's now out of print. I wasn't expecting to like this manga nearly as much as I did. This was a lot of fun, had a nice, good pacing. I think the omnibus editions really helped having two volumes together in one. And also, Ikeda draws a heck of a lot of silly faces. I appreciated the silly faces. (laughs) What about you guys? Have either of you also seen the anime before reading this? Yeah, I saw the anime. Oh, that's been a long time ago, I think. And I, like, loved it. It's one of my favorites. And um, I actually had started to rewatch it over this past weekend since we were all in the house. <laughs> um, but now I've, I've read the Omnibus, and I'm glad that it finally came out because it was licensed a long time ago. So I'm glad that we actually um, have it. But I I like both versions. I really like the manga. And I'm like Helen said, I'm glad that... Um, we have two volumes in one because a lot seems to happen every chapter. I think it was just better to have two volumes together. But yeah, I think um, I think it's a lot of fun. I really had fun reading. I kind of wish I had the second one already. Yeah, the second volume. I know the release date for it was at the end of February. I don't know if I'm getting a review copy of it. I haven't. If I am at this point, I haven't seen anyone posting online about having a copy of it. So it's kind of Schrodinger's book at this point. Oh, and one thing about the chapters that I like is that this version from Udon Entertainment includes the like the cover pages that it, the manga would have had as it ran in the magazine. And so it has these very soap opera-like covers, like <laughs> the story that's sweeping the nation, what will happen to Marie Antoinette's latest escapades. And I'm like, guys, this is history. You can look it up. <laughs> Which is cracking me up a lot. Especially since I've read and listened to a lot more history on the French Revolution since I first saw the anime. So now I'm able to follow some of the plot better because I actually know more about the incredible amount of stuff that went into in the lead up to the French Revolution. My God, that was a messy one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I also watched the anime a while ago. Um, I got, you know, those, uh, what can we call it, Rikeskuff DVDs. and I really liked that when I watched it, and then reading this, or like when it was announced to be licensed, I was really looking forward to it, and then it took like five years or however long it was. <laughs> um, so I'm glad that we finally have it. And like reading it again, uh, I just, like every everyone is vaguely familiar with the French Revolution, I think, uh, so I'm glad that Ikea puts up no... Uh, misconceptions that this is going to be a happy ending manga because it's going to end with the French Revolution, um, and I think being able to tell the story, tell the story as well as she does, knowing that um, a lot of people are going to die at the end of this, uh, is uh, just an extremely, it's extremely compelling and it's ex- an extremely, what am I trying to say, uh, great execution on her part. Yeah, I especially like how she's handling Marie Antoinette here since. I mean, Marie Antoinette in some versions of history is a villain, and of course, whenever someone is a villain, there's always folks who will try to, like, rehabilitate them. But I feel like Ikeda really toes the line between showing that, 
Antoinette is making a lot of stupid decisions, but that she also was quite young and never really suited for this, honestly. She never quite had the kind of mind that was going to suspect the underhandedness that she has to deal with in the French court or the mm, foresight to see through people in some ways. I felt like it's a fairly even-handed approach to her character, you know, saying that she doesn't necessarily deserve what she's been dealt, but she played part of the hand herself. I was also shocked to see that um, one of the important characters in the anime, Andres, who his Oscar's main, well, not main, but like one of Oscar's like romantic interests in some ways, has like a very minor role in this first volume. Like, I think there's like exactly one panel where he's drawn looking normally and the rest of the time he has like, he's like being beat up by his grandmother or just has like a silly expression going on. And I thought that was kind of hilarious, especially since I remember when I was watching the anime, I was like, my God, why does everybody ship these two characters together? This is not good. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, so that was really the main observation I had coming away from this first volume was just seeing the little ways that the story had been altered when it was turned into an anime and me discovering that I actually really just enjoyed the manga better in a lot of ways. Like I said, Ikeda has a lot of really funny moments in here. And I think it's always easier for a manga to switch back and forth between being serious and comedic in very short order. I know that Hiromu Arakawa likes to do that in her works as well. And I feel like it's much harder to do that in anime to just totally shift the tone back and forth. But here it works really well. And Ikeda also has like some really nice paneling chops. Like there were a couple that caught my eye where Oscar is like lounging on top of one panel and sort of like influencing but not quite influencing stuff that's going up on in the rest of the page and i just thought there was some really clever work there um and of course it's also interesting for me to see how the art has like very little use of screen tone you know probably part part of the fact it was the 70s people aren't coloring things the same way all that jazz that was interesting also this is a really nice release for the book like i said it's a hardcover omnibus and the pages feel more like the kind of paper I would expect out of a graphic novel in the U.S. They're that kind of glossiness, which makes it really hard for me to take photos of the book and put them on Twitter. <laughs> but manga paper in general is not great stuff. Like, I can already see a lot of stuff yellowing, which tells me it's acidifying. So this is one of the few volumes I have where I'm not worried about brittle book syndrome in a couple of decades. Sorry, guys, I went to library school. It changed me. Yeah, changed um, me I mean, I just lived with that. So, uh, and we have a whole shelf full of the Tokyo Pop stuff, so it's back to the worrying shelf, and then, <laughs> um, but yeah, these books are gorgeous, uh, it seems that Volume 2 is scheduled for a May 5th release now, I don't know if that changed, uh, it must have, based on what you yeah, heard since, before. Since I was trying to get my review out before the end of January, since we were trying to get it out, like, around the release date, if I could, and I definitely saw that volume two at that point was scheduled for end of february because mm -hmm. i distinctly remember checking what the dates were for the second and third volumes yeah that's not good we... since we know udon has not been as transparent on why they've had issues with this book or just hang-ups you know in the process for going through it so it's really weird like we do know the whole thing is translated by now and there's two translators officially credited but apparently there was a third who worked on it first and just was not happy and I actually didn't even credit the translator on the copyright page on this one. I had to go digging back for my Twitters to find that credit. 
Yeah, so... Um, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, it seems like it's only going to be five volumes, too. So, uh, even if these are cover price of, like, $40, they are, one, extremely, extremely nice, as Helen said, and two, you're not going to have to collect too many of them, so... Also, y'all are manga fans. Y'all know we just wait for the sales at right stuff, or you yeah. just wait until you've got, like, coupons on coupons you can use at Barnes & Noble. We, we've done this before. Yep. Yeah, I have I have the book in my hand right now, actually, and it, it really is... It really is a nice book. I, I feel like we waited a little bit too long for it, but now that we've got it, it, it is really nice. Um, it has a bunch of color pages and all of that. Um, and I really I really do like her art. Like, I haven't... This is the f- first thing that I think I've read by her. And well, we I really did an episode on Claudine, so... Oh, that's right. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. That's not the first thing. Uh, it's sitting on the shelf. I. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. Wait, hang on. Yeah. I was the one who couldn't read it for that episode. You two did, and yet you two are the ones we who both forgot. About that. <laughs> but yeah, and the glossy pages really add to it. I'm kind of hit or miss with glossy pages, so I wasn't sure about that when I first opened it. But it does really make it nice, and it's a it's a it's a hefty book. But I feel like um, a lot happened in this first omnibus. I mean, the anime is pretty long-ish, not super long, I guess, but what was it like 40 something episodes maybe yeah i think it was 40 yeah yeah between 40 and 50 if not and and they covered a good amount of ground in this first volume and i feel like it was um interesting and entertaining throughout it felt like there was always something happening but i feel like it still had like the it wasn't confusing there was a narrative to it so so yeah that is rose of her side i think all three of us are looking forward to reading the rest of this whenever it comes out and udon entertainment give us sugar sugar room please that one was also <laughs> announced like five years ago just please you can actually read the entire thing online for free in japanese with the new colorized pages on the internet i swear it's legit so just come on udon just get somebody on your social media or something come on and so with that we're gonna take a quick break and then we will be back for our second title of the night cats of the Louvre. Uh, we're back, and we're going to talk about Tayo Maximago's Cats of the Louvre. Um, this is part of a series of Louvre comics. They're actually uh, commissioned by the Louvre itself. There are um, 14 other books uh, at the time of this article that I read, which was in 2018, so maybe there's more right now. But uh, at the time, there were 14 book- other books, uh, including some of them... Uh, the other ones, also by Jiro Tanaguchi, Hirohiko Araki, and Naoki Urasawa. I believe we only have the Araki one in English as well, and that's like uh, Ronan at the Louvre or something. No, no, we've got Jiro Tanaguchi's one, I oh, think. Oh, do we? Okay. I think so. I don't remember who it's published by. It's not one of the traditional manga publishers, but I'm like mm. 99% sure that that one is published. Alright. Um, well, this is, I think, my first foray into Tayo Maximago the mangaka. I have watched Ping Pong and I don't I don't know if I've read anything else or read or watched anything that was uh, 
Kyle Moxamogo's hands were in it, but um, this was highly enjoyable for me. Uh, what it is about is uh, this cat that is translated as Snow Baby um, as the uh, main-ish character, uh, sort of. Uh, and the cat is um, a young, youngish cat that cannot or does not age, it seems. And this is as a result of um, him being able to jump into paintings, um, which is about as weird as it gets. Uh, and there's also this old, this older fellow that's uh, the night security at the Louvre called Marcel. His sister also had this ability, did not age, and could jump into paintings. And she has been missing for several decades um, at this point. And then uh, the, his his new friends, Cecile, the daytime tour guide who seems to just be going through the motions of uh, showing people the Mona Lisa and all the other art in the, in the Louvre um, until she finds this mystery of this missing girl and she gets uh, really into it and actually believes it, which is not something that uh, people would normally believe at face value. Um, and then there's the new security guard named Patrick who is uh, just going along with everything else that everybody is doing. But uh, Helen, you said you weren't act as big of a fan of this? No. Uh, I'm trying to remember if I've actually read any of his other works. I don't think so. I think, like you, I've just seen Ping Pong, although only a part of Ping Pong, since I didn't like Ping Pong. Um, but yeah, this one, it felt like it was being weird for the sake of being weird. And I like my weirdness to have a point. I'm just rather finicky when it comes to things that are of a more surreal nature or whimsical. I just get really finicky about that. Also, the art style just rubbed me the wrong way. I don't quite know why. It felt like practiced unrefinement, which just I just viscerally don't like. Also, this is one of those stories where the cats appear like cats whenever the viewpoint is one of the other humans. But when the cats are on their own, they seem to envision themselves as other little humans. And I read this back in the fall, and now looking back on it, they ended up looking a lot like the cats from the musical Cats, the movie adaptation recently. <laughs> Not the far superior theater costumes. <laughs> so just very strange there. Also, the painting that it turns out um, is sort of at the center of all of this is one where I took one look at it and I went, ew. I went just like, no. <laughs> no. Also kind of funny, Viz accidentally sent me two review copies, so we had an emergency giveaway at the OASG. Because <laughs> that's our solution whenever we get two copies of something. I don't think this is my first time with this author. I've because he did Sunny, right? Was that him? Yep. Yeah, Sunny and Tacana Creek Creek, I think. Yeah, yeah, I've read it a little bit of Sunny, and I feel like I've read something else, but like he never like clicked with me, so I wasn't super excited about this one. Uh, but I wound up liking it more than I expected to. The art style takes a little bit of getting used to. Like I don't really care for when the cats look like human people. I just think they look creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought the story itself was interesting enough and about the group of people um, in the museum and da-da-da. I thought, I thought all of that was interesting. I don't know. I went into it with, like, low expectations and was and was, was entertained by it. So. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you say, Helen, that uh, you don't want it to be weird for the sake of being weird, that's, like, exactly why I would want to read this kind of manga. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it is, uh, at least on its face, it is just a advertisement for the Louvre, and not that the Louvre needs advertisement, but um, given that, uh, all I 
all I really want out of this manga is to get a general sense of what Taiyo Matsubaru's writing is like and what his art is like, uh, and also, um, given what I know about uh, uh, generally about his work, uh, for it to be weird. And um, it's definitely weird, and I liked it for being weird. Yeah, it was a case for me as well where the side characters seem to have a much more interesting story hmm. than what was going on with the main plot. Like, there's definitely a, th- a thread with Cecile, the um, docent who does tours by day, where we know that she was originally training to be a curator. Not a curator, actually. I guess the term would probably be conservationist, with some distinctions, maybe. Um, which is a pretty hard field to get into here in the U.S., at least. It's pretty small. You have to know a lot of chemistry. And it sounds like she was making good progress towards that at one point and then had to stop. And I was curious, you know, oh, what was her story there behind that? Or we don't really get much on Patrick, but the Night Watchman, he also just seemed like he probably lived a more interesting life. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of felt like I was being teased with these inconsequential details that were much more enticing than the story itself. And I also just had a hard time emotionally connecting to the characters, which makes sense because they are cats. They are <laughs> not human. But still, it was like, why do you care about this, though? I just, you're not making me care about it. I think I'm supposed to right now, so, uh. <laughs> And I never like stories like that where it's like, I don't care about this. I get the impression I am supposed to care, which makes me feel weird for not caring. And I don't come to my fiction for this, so. It, it reminds me of, like, high school English classes all over again. <laughs> I'm with Helen, though, that I would have liked to have found out more about the the humans involved in the story like they seem like they had some interesting story threads that we never really got to see i guess i would have liked i don't know maybe another volume about them or maybe other stories about them like this this be a smaller volume and then we focus on other characters but i, I doubt we'll get that yeah like it only being uh one omnibus two parts um there is of course room for it to expand from that and i think uh maybe Maximago had more ideas than he was able to fit in and just focused on uh, the the cat, the sister, and all of the stuff going on with that painting. Uh, I forget the painting's name, but they did actually mention it, and it's a famous sort of painting. I think it's the Funeral, Profe- Funeral Procession of Love. That's it. That sounds right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it has to deal with the death of Cupid, which is in none of the myths I ever recall reading, because I went through a Greek mythology obsession phase as a kid as you, <laughs> as one does <laughs> yeah so i did too i did not read that again either um but yeah it seems like he he focused on that story uh at the expense of of the other stories like we do get a, a little bit of that uh of the peeking at what she used to be but uh it didn't really delve into it besides that she was very promising and she didn't live up to that for whatever reason i just wonder what made him want to write a story about cats? <laughs> Enemies. Like, I just, I don't know. It's not like it bothered me. It's just like, I wonder where this idea came from to make it about cats in a museum. I don't know. I was just curious about that thought process. Yeah, when I was doing my review on this for the OASG, I was looking to seeing what some of the other titles the Louvre had commissioned were about. And they seemed to really be just sort of this wild variety of stuff. Which makes me think that the Louvre probably gives the uh, the creators pretty free reign in stories. So I guess he just wanted to like tell a story about cats. I was like, 
did he have this idea in mind but couldn't fit into another story so he just right. kind of in here and it's funny because there are some museums like i know there's one in russia specifically which are known for having museum cats like their cats have just always lived in and around the museum and occasionally they catch mice and occasionally they just you know sunbathe for the visitors so these cats yeah. but those aren't cats. like secret cats living in the attic either <laughs> yeah uh, but all right, that was Cags of mixed results um, from the panel. Shall we close this episode <laughs> out, though? Mm, sure. You can find my reviews of Cats of the Louvre, Rose of the Versailles, and many, many other things. Please, God, don't take a look at my two-review pile over at the OASG. And you can also find me co-hosting the OASG's podcast uh, over there as well. Even though we are all contained inside for this coronavirus <laughs> epidemic, that does not impede my ability to make podcasts at all. I am kind of amused, and the number of podcasts I listen to, there are suddenly a number of NPR reporters who are like, yep, I'm reporting from a closet. I'm reporting from under my covers. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, damn, how do they make their audio sound so much better than when I do it under the covers? <laughs> and if you want to hear any more rambling thoughts along those lines, feel free to follow me on Twitter, at WanderingDreamer. <laughs> the magic of professionalism. Uh, Probably better mics than mine, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at MondioRen. I'm still alive. I'm still there. <laughs> I don't know why you keep going on Twitter, because you just get like more and more anxious everything you see I on there. Like, like, April, stay off the Twitter. <laughs> I know. It. I'm still there every day, just like randomly looking at something like, oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> but I'm actually there. <laughs> See, we just need to get you, like, some good pet accounts to follow, so whenever you got that urge, you can just look at those instead. Right. Probably, honestly. Why don't you talk about that? <laughs> right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Hack and Passion K, and you can find this podcast on Twitter, Act. I'm not getting your ears. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Um, <laughs> Are you going to give up on the Twitter account? <laughs> uh, I was about to say Haiku Podcast. I was going to be wrong. Oh, <laughs> Uh, you can find all of our episodes at TaikuPodcast.com. That's T-A-I-I-K-U. Uh, and you can rate, review us on iTunes and junk. Until next time, then, folks. Bye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>